This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, February 10th, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Unless the Lord ascends the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, the children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks of his enemies in the gate. Well, thank you for being here with us this morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to get right to work in this psalm, which is a little bit different than we normally do, but I'll explain as to why. Uh, So if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we... We come before you as your people, knowing that we come not because we are worthy in ourselves, but because we have been made worthy through the blood of Jesus Christ. That you see us, Father, as you see your Son, and you delight in hearing us pray. And so we come before you humbly and yet confidently. And Lord, as we look out at this snow around us, Lord, we're reminded that you are the creator of all things, and that what you create is quite beautiful, but it also reminds us, Lord, of how something as simple as snow can reveal that we are not in control of much, that snow can stop the world from moving. And so, Lord, we thank You for that reminder, not just that You're creative and beautiful and powerful, but that we are small and creatures in need of You. And Jesus, we praise You that whatever storm comes our way, whether it be natural, whether it just be spiritual, whether it be emotional, Lord, we know that You are in the middle of the storm with us. That You are there. That You are not absent That the storm is not a sign of your absence, but many times the sign of your presence. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you will continue as you promised to do to fill us with the peace that our identity and our destiny are secure in Christ. You comfort us, Lord, with truth. You comfort us and lead us, Holy Spirit, through the most dangerous of roads that we might travel. And we thank you for that. Lord, we ask this morning that you will help us to see your glory a bit more clearly, a bit more boldly. We continue to ask for protection, Lord, but we are grateful that your church here could gather. And I pray for the churches who are unable to gather this morning, that they will still have a time with you, Lord. But it reminded me of of just how faithful you've been to this church how grateful we must be for even the smallest of things that we take for granted. 
Remind us this morning, Lord, that Your Word is where Your power is found. Holy Spirit, would You just move me out of the way? Would You speak the words You need to speak? The words of conviction, the words of comfort, the words of hope, and the words of love. We thank You for this morning. It is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So, before, which we will, dive into 2 Thessalonians. So if you're new, we typically go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We just finished the first letter to the Thessalonians. We will start next week the second letter to the Thessalonians, which will be three chapters, three sermons, and a lot about the end times. It should be both disturbing and exciting at the same time. We thought it important to pause between these kind of two series and just consider for a moment what and how God is building here at Restoration Road Church. Um, to provide um, a sense of vision for us. And as I, as I try to do that for a, a kind of, I guess, a what's next or what's going on um, picture, I don't want us to be drawn backwards necessarily, our attention to be drawn backwards, to remember uh, all that has happened, though it's certainly important to remember what has happened, to celebrate and even memorialize the things that have happened. Um, this morning, I don't even really want to direct our eyes too far forward and go, well, here's the five-year plan for the church and everything that's going to happen. Instead, um, I would like to draw our eyes upward that we might see and set our minds on the things that above and seek His kingdom before we seek our own. And the reason I think it's so important to be talking about that is because last week, um, if you were new or if you just have not paid attention, uh, we experienced a, a milestone moment in the history of our church, the brief history of our church, where we assumed ownership of this 19th century building um, which was once a general store, once a livery, once a Pontiac dealership, once an office complex, once a billiard hall, and now is a house of God. Yeah. So in a very tangible and real way, that I don't think we'll actually do this, but figuratively speaking, we have raised a flag for Jesus and declared our long-term commitment to be here and to preach, quite simply, that Jesus restores for the next generation. And without question though, I want us to remember, and I know we say this a lot and I'll continue to say it, that the church is certainly more than a building. It is a people, but it is a people that are united and gathered in a place. From the very beginning, I don't know if you knew this, but if you read the scriptures enough, you'll kind of see that actually God puts a lot of value on places on gardens and mountains and specific lands with boundaries and temples. In fact, if you turn to the book of Revelation, not now, but when you do read that, the very last couple chapters, you will see that the story of God, our story, the story of the world, the universe and everything in it, it ends with God's people in God's place, surrounded by God's presence. Now until that day comes, which we certainly hope it'll come right now during Snowpocalypse 2019 would be rad, but until that day comes, 
where Jesus returns and sets all things right, He will continue to call His ambassadors and establish His embassies in earthly places where His presence uniquely dwells among His people, whether they be barns or bars or billiard halls. And through His people in these places and beyond, His name is going to be made known to the entire world. Beginning in this city and then extending. So Jesus hasn't returned yet, which means Jesus is still building His church. And the planting of Restoration Road Church in Snohomish six-ish years ago, the planting of Roots Church in Stanwood just a couple years ago, the planting of Redemption Church in Mill Creek a couple years before that, and the countless number of churches that are being planted across the globe and the region, the nation all over, is evidence that God is still building His church. There are really, if you've never been a part of it, um, there are very few things that are kind of more exciting than the planting of a new church, a new work in Christ. And yet, after 15-ish years of pastoring and preaching and about 12 or 13 of that in planting, I've watched what happens shortly after God bring something out of nothing. Because I hope you understand that Restoration Road Church started as nothing. There was no one. And nothing. And then something. And I found that shortly after nothing becomes something, things change a bit. And what I've seen is that those involved in that initial experience with all that energy and excitement begin to forget exactly how that something was built. What begins sometimes as a mission devoted to God's glory can easily become a mess devoted to self-glory. I don't fear that for our church, but I fear that for our church. I think every pastor in every church should. It's interesting to imagine how many cults begin as gospel-centered gatherings and then go awry as they become or go from very God-centered to very man-centered. What once I found when these missions turns into messes was light suddenly becomes heavy. What was once fearless becomes full of fear. What was once completely spiritual becomes overwhelmingly pragmatic. And what was once life-giving sometimes becomes enslaving. And you go, how does this happen? How, how does a church go from what is so great to something so not so great? And there are probably lots of things that contribute to that shift. But one thing is for sure, it happens especially to those who forget who the real builder is behind all things. So Psalm 27 is the passage I want to spend time in this morning. It's a song written either for Solomon or by Solomon. There's arguments as to who actually wrote it. 
If it's for Solomon, then it's written by his father, King David, and it's written instructively for the son who knows is going to build the house of God, the center of worship for the Jewish people. If it's by Solomon, then it's likely written reflectively as a man who has built or is building the temple of God. Either way, the subject of the song is not the king who built or even the temple that is built, but the Lord who continues to build. So it doesn't really matter. The psalm, in many ways, is a warning against the wrong kind of working. And I think it's very appropriate for us as a church, as we've worked hard, and there were many who sacrificed and worked really hard to get the building, if you will. And I hope and pray that we're not on the cusp of building amnesia, forgetting who actually builds anything. And so this psalm was a good warning. It's interesting, Solomon wrote countless proverbs admonishing the slackers and the sluggard who refuse to work, but here he warns the one who actually is rightly working with perhaps the wrong means or the wrong methods or even at the wrong mission. So let's take a look at the first verse of Psalm 127, which says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, the brief history uh, of our church extends back to the planting of Damascus Road Church. That's the church that really this began as. It was Damascus Road Snohomish. Um, and the story of our church through that church, it's a, it's a series of pretty miraculous events. If you sat down, and, and Mark and I sometimes do this because Mark, uh, Aaron was there. A couple, we can just reminisce about some of the crazy stuff that happened. And it is pretty crazy. And the planting of this particular church really started as an experiment. And by experiment, I mean, well, let's just have an evening service in addition to what we're doing and see if we can build a gathering, see what will happen if God is there and, and He's stirring. And so in time, very slowly, it began in my house. Then it launched over to what is the laundromat now, which was at one point Christ the King. Um, and then eventually came to this place. And over time, non-believers were converted, believers were baptized, disciples were made, leaders were identified, elders were installed, ministries were established. You may not know that we didn't fundraise a single dollar for either of those churches. Never received measurable support from any outside organizations. Never hired any professional pastors. Never attempted to spend a bunch of money with inflatables and a big whatever to make a big splash. And yet, a church was planted. And if someone were to ask me, so, how do you plant a church? I could describe for them what they want to hear. But if they ask, how was Restoration Road Church planted? How was Damascus Road planted? 
I would say, God did it. I'm really not that smart. And I can say that knowing that the other guys who were participating with us, we didn't have anything figured out. But God did something. Something was planted. Something was established. And so as you stop and go like, okay, so we just bought this building and we're established as a church. you got a full room of disciples gathered here. you got people being ministered and, and people becoming Christians and, and marriages being restored and things happening. Why? What is the reason for present success, if we can call it that? And what is going to be the reason for the future fruitfulness? Now, as we look back, it's really tempting to ascribe credit to the wrong thing or the wrong person. And I'm speaking the context of the church, but this easily applies to many other contexts. If we look back, we go, well, maybe things worked because we had this particular uh, preacher or we had this particular worship leader or we had this other person doing this. That's why it worked because if that person wasn't doing X, then we wouldn't have seen Y. You know what the psalmist warns us here about? Whether it be in the church, whether it be in the family, whether it be in the community, he warns us against any such man-centered boasting. This is the same kind of warning that Paul actually gives to the Corinthian church. I love that the letter to the Corinthians is in the Bible because they are so messed up. And you go, Man, if it's dependent upon men for God's church to happen, Corinth ain't going to work. It's so full of sin, so full of brokenness. And so in the very beginning of the letter, he actually is responding because the members have polarized themselves around people. They've all polarized themselves around their favorite teacher. If you read the first chapter, you'll, you'll see that there's those who are, oh, I'm on Team Paul. Then I'm on, oh no, I'm on Team Apollos. He's the best. No, 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 I'm on, I'm on Team Peter. And a few clever people are like, well, I'm on Team Jesus. So, And the church is being divided as they get excited about particular men. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 9, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. He just described himself as nothing. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field and God's building. My prayer and Paul's hope for the Corinthian church is that it will remain God-centered. Now, the psalmist, either Solomon in reflection or David in instruction, states, unless the Lord builds all of the work of building is meaningless. Now, in the context of the church, maybe even from the perspective of a pastor, it's really easy to understand. Like, okay, I see that. How that applies, I'm not sure, but I understand what's being said. Just apply that to your own life in all the ways that you work hard. 
and all the things that you're working for. Unless the Lord builds, your work means nothing. I'm not sure if that's comforting or disturbing. Unless the Lord builds, all of your hard work in building is meaningless. You can work as hard as you want, as long as you can, as right as you think you can, but if the Lord is not in it, it won't be built. So the building of a church or family or a job or a life is not about the right opportunities. It's not about the right resources. It's not for a church about the right building or even the right people. The building of a church or any of those other things is accomplished by the Lord and unless He builds, nothing is built even if something's built. Isn't that scary? There are plenty of things being built out there. Big things in the name of the Lord of whom the Lord is not in. How frightening it is for me as, as a pastor here to know that we could have all kinds of, quote, success without God. Do you know you can have a life like that? A life that's successful. But in the end, it burns up because everything you built was not built by the Lord or for the Lord or by the Lord. This is what actually Paul writes again to that same people, to the Corinthian church about the right kind of building. He says in verse 10 of that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder. So he says, the grace that God gave to me, I began to build, so God was doing it. He says, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it and he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. And then he begins to say that things can be built. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones or wood and hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day the day of the Lord will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though himself will be saved, but only through fire. So something can be built. The question, is it built on Christ? Is it built for Christ? Is it built by Christ? Or is it just built? People build successful jobs all the time. Successful, quote-unquote, successful churches all the time. Marriages, name it. But the psalmist is warning us that unless the Lord builds, whatever is built will not last. Let me give you a contemporary and somewhat of a personal example. There are many things that start, as I said, 
with the Lord building it, and then something tends to change. And a very kind of uh, close example for us, Mars Hill. There are many great things that God did through that church, but do you realize that it was gone in six months? Like that. And I don't for a second suggest that God never built part, but something happened where it began to be built perhaps on Christ, but perhaps with wooden hay because it burned up really quick. A 15,000 person church to be gone in months. And certainly not gone. Many re-sowed into other churches, but gone. That could be scary. As fire begins to reveal what's really there. Because the truth is, when you are dependent on yourself for your success in what is built, be it a church, be it a family, be it a nation, it's a very tenuous thing. Because you begin to trust yourself for the security of that which was built. If I built it, if I'm the one building, then I better make sure that what's built is secure. And so, essentially what happens, you begin to live in fear. This happened when we first planted the church because when we planted Damascus Road, I was employed as a teacher. And so... Literally, the church was started with me putting like 300 bucks into a bank and it's like, hey, Damascus Road's real. And we showed up at an elementary school. Uh, we bought a trailer where full of chairs and stuff to do. And I took a loan out on my house. And then, uh, and it wasn't that expensive, but then we um, would show up and I, I was not getting paid by the church. So, I had all kinds of freedom. I knew that like, well, my tithe will pay the rent for the elementary school, so it was very light, free. Preach whatever. I don't care anything. Just go. You might upset the people. So what? Right? <laughs> but then what happens, it's interesting. Um, I had to be told to quit my job by the elders, that being teaching. And then guess what happened? Sarah started getting scared. Are we going to have enough money? Are we going to be able to pay rent? How many people do we have on Sunday? It's weird. And I know many, like, maybe you can't relate to that experience, but I'm telling you, like, I was fearful. You know why I was fearful? Because I'd begun to believe that what had been built had actually been built by me or us. And that's the path to fear. And so essentially, if you begin to believe that what is being built is dependent upon you, if the success is like, well, if we didn't do this, if I didn't do this, and then you begin to go, well, I better protect this, I better take care of this, because it's all dependent upon us. And so what the psalmist calls is the watchman, right? You'll sit on the walls of the city watching, looking for vulnerabilities, looking for enemies that might attack and rob you of what you've built. And the psalmist says, you'll never, ever, 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 ever sleep. Believing you deserve credit for all that was been built in your life, you'll 
end up being governed by anxiety because you wrongly believe you are in control of it. And the psalmist says this kind of worry is just vain, empty, pride-filled waste of time. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 19, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The truth of God's sovereign working and building shouldn't cause us to relinquish our responsibility to work, right? It should direct it. And what I mean by that, when you trust that the Lord is going to build what He's going to build, that actually gives, I believe, your smallest contributions meaning and your greatest failures relief. It takes away your fear. Not your responsibility, but your fear. What if I, but if I don't, but I, God's got it. If God built it, then God will sustain it. And if God sees fit, He will end it. Oh, wait, what? Wait, what? I have full confidence. This is Jesus' church. He planted it. He will continue to grow it with or without me, with or without you, and He will end it when it's time. And that's freeing and relieving of fear. That's trusting in His sovereignty. God's sovereignty shouldn't cause it to go, well, it doesn't matter what I do. No, God's sovereignty says it matters what you do. And He's in control if you do it wrongly. Now, at the most basic level, I think, the psalmist wants to quell our fleshly excitement and direct our hearts. But it's not that he doesn't want us to make our plans. It doesn't mean that we don't do anything, but I think he wants us to commit our plans to God, to do our work unto the Lord, and to trust that He is building what He wants to build, even if it is different than what we thought should be built. We all have a vision for what should be built, right? For our family, for our church, for our vocation. Ah, and like, well, if the Lord's going to build it, His plans are going to come to pass. You best submit yourself and get on board and ask Him to let you receive His plans as they unfold in your life. Because they're going to come to pass. This is about surrendering self-boasting. It's also, I think, surrendering the tendency to be self-dependent for what is being built. But what does he say in verse 2? He kind of informs us what it should look like to trust God in this way. He says, it's vain that you rise up early and go too late, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I love my bride, but I think she has eaten many times the bread of anxious toil. I know some other ladies have as well. I have as well. Have you ever eaten the bread of anxious toil? Right? The, the psalmist is describing someone who has all of their hope and their success for success and security in themselves. And whether it be, as I said, building a career, or building a house, or building a family, or building a church, or as Solomon, he's building a nation. He says this kind of person goes to bed late and gets up early. They are what the world might describe as a workaholic. Because it's all up to them. And 
And it's interesting because it's not that they don't... Think about this. It's not that they don't lose sleep. They sacrifice sleep. It's a choice. See, the psalmist is not condemning hard work. I think in our culture today, we're somewhat becoming more apathetic in our work ethic as opposed to workaholic, but that certainly is both are probably present. The Bible in, in particular Psalms, I mean the Proverbs of Solomon, they have a lot to say about the slacker and the idle, the one who refuses to work. In fact, the word sluggard is used 14 times in the book of 30 Proverbs. Almost half. And in each case, the Bible condemns laziness and it warns of the consequences of being a sluggard. For example, Proverbs 6 says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little summer, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. Or Proverbs 22.13, which humorously describes the excuses that the sluggard will use to get out of work. Saying, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. I would work, but I'll go out there and there's lions. So the Bible has a very strong condemning of laziness, but unfortunately that can lead us to elevate hard work to the point of kind of justifiable idolatry. I mean, after all, I'm working to provide for my family or I'm working to contribute to society or I'm working towards the things of the Lord and building His kingdom. Hard work without doubt means sacrifice. But there remains a right way and a wrong way to do this. So the psalmist warns us against sacrificial work that results in sacrificing the wrong things. Sacrificial work that results in sacrificing the wrong things. Even God work that results in abandoning God's gifts. So the psalmist says that God gives to His beloved sleep. Rest. There's nothing wrong with work that requires sacrifice. I think it could be argued that all great things actually required sacrifice. But in building those things, even as we are working unto the Lord, we must make sure we actually prioritize God's commands. See, rest is more than a good idea. Rest is commanded by the Lord. And so when you think about someone losing sleep and someone sacrificing sleep, it's not just a health thing. It's actually in many ways sacrificing the very things God has said you need and you need to do. And so we ask ourselves, as we are working to build what it is we're building, whether it be the church, whether it be your family, whether it be your career, whether it be whatever thing you're involved in, you're working hard, I, without doubt, know that you're making sacrifices. Nothing great is built without sacrifices. 
as parents, we make all kinds of sacrifices for our children. As members of the church, we have made in recent months, made all kinds of sacrifices to build the kingdom of God. But I would say we should ask ourselves questions like what kinds of things are we sacrificing to ensure we succeed in building or protecting what has been built? How many of those things are we sacrificing are actually the very gifts that God has given us to enjoy? How many of those things are we sacrificing in order to build X are actually commands of God to obey? I mean, I know God would want me to do this, but He wants me to provide for my family, so I'm going to do... Wait a second. Yes, He wants you to provide for your family. Yes, He wants you to obey Him in this way as well. Why are you putting those against one another? It's interesting the number of sacrifices that you'll see pastors make to make sure the church succeeds. And there's a reason why you see pastors' marriages falling apart and families falling apart, which is really beginning with the relationship with God falling apart because they didn't prioritize the things of God above the work of God. That makes sense? It's, it's deceptive. And how many things, we have lots of families in here, and you go, how many things have we done for our families because we love them and in the midst of that actually disobeyed the things God has said to do with our families or for our families? And so when we look at someone like, you know, you're staying up late and you're going to, you know, getting up early just so you, like, he says he gives you rest and sleep. And if we don't just look at that as sleep, but going, actually, that's a command of God, a gift of God. Maybe we should pay attention to that and make sure we don't sacrifice that before we sacrifice some other things. Essentially, it's about not compromising God's ways because we think they work better to do it my own. I know there were many times where I'd stay up super late trying to finish my sermon and make the perfect thing. I'm going to preach this text. It is my job to preach the perfect sermon on this text. And if people aren't crying and coming to Jesus, it's failure. So I'd stay up, make coffee at 11 o'clock. And I remember hearing Tim Keller going, look, you put 10 hours in your sermon that sermon is not going to be significantly better if you put in 15 hours or 20 hours. That's not what makes a great sermon. It's amazing the kinds of compromises that we will make. In truth though, I think the reason we do is because many of the ways God calls, like like rest, like take some time, rest, sleep, Many of God's ways seem very countercultural and even counterintuitive to us. Because practically speaking, if you begin to read the Bible, you will see that many of God's ways don't make sense. What He calls us to do doesn't make... You're like, really? Is that the most efficient way to do that? Is that the best way, God? Not that He's asking our opinion. But it's interesting how much we labor in vain because we refuse to build according to the way the master builder said we should. That's not really how it should happen. 
In other words, as a church, you're not going to see us. We've got great a building. It's a great new season of ministry in our church. But in many ways, you're not going to see us doing anything new in order to trigger some kind of growth. On the contrary, you know what I'm concerned with most as a husband and a dad, as a pastor? It's primarily with that simple long obedience in the same direction, even when it feels unproductive. That long obedience in the same direction, even when it feels unproductive. My friend and fellow pastor Jim Fickert posted something on his Facebook and I told him I would steal it from him. I thought it was really good. And I don't know if he made this up, but he's super smart because he's Dutch and tall, so I figure he probably did. But he may have got it from somewhere else. But he said, Albert Einstein is widely credited, though he may not have actually said this, but he's widely credited as saying, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. The biblical idea of perseverance is doing the same thing over and over again. Investing long-term results over the immediate. It seems that the difference between insanity and faith is rooted in who you believe controls the results. He's a smart dude, isn't he? It's about faithfulness. And faithfulness in the small things. Now, the last three verses of this psalm probably deserve their own sermon. They've been used all kinds of ways. Some scholars struggle um, to connect the logical progression of thought with these two uh, verses and the first ones in the last three, leading to believe actually they I think it's a separate psalm. I'm no scholar, but I think there's a connection. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And so here's the connection I find, however strange it may seem. Insofar as we trust that God is building and remain faithful to work according to His ways, we will experience fruitfulness in our work. What do I mean? Well, consider the example of rest. Not to be crass, but there's not many babies made during work. They're made at rest. When we've stopped working and started enjoying the gifts of God. God commands. Even His commands for rest are actually intended to help us fulfill our mission. We sometimes view them as against our mission. That's hindering my mission. That's slowing down what I want to accomplish. I think all too often we reject some of the commands of God because we just don't think they're helping us do what we want to do. And all that reveals is that we're actually working on the wrong mission, namely our own. We're devoted to building our own kingdoms because we only employ the commands of God that actually serve our purposes meet our preferences, and fit into our plans. 
then what is the mission of God? That's a big question. What is His mission for His people? What is His mission for His parents who have children? What, what about the church? What's its mission? What, why does my family exist? Why do I exist? Are those missions all different? Or are they the same? I would argue that God made His purpose pretty clear in the very beginning in the book of Genesis in the first chapter before all things fell. And he said, God blessed them in verse 28 of chapter 1. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Culturally, theologically or biblically, we talk about this as the cultural mandate. As those who were made in the image of God, Adam and Eve were, were managers, if you will, representatives, vice regents for God in this world He created. And they were to fill the earth. They were filled with godly offspring and glorify Him through their dominion and ruling of the earth, spreading His glory as His kingdom people spread His name. And what naturally occurs, the birth of children has spiritual implications. In other words, God is not just building families with children. He is building a family of families full of spiritual children, what He calls in the Old Testament and the New, a holy nation. So God's mission is multiplication. To make disciples and families and churches that glorify God. And the psalmist says that children are a reward in very many ways mean that they are a gift from God that results from faithfulness. And what do I mean by that? Well, insofar as we live in accord with the design that God has made us, babies are born. And even as we obey, however, Interestingly enough, not to get too biological with you, even as we obey what is natural, without saying it, you know what I'm saying. Do you know there's no guarantee a baby's going to be made? God has to do something, right? My wife and I struggled for five plus years trying to have children. We knew what we were doing. But nothing was happening. Because even when you're obedient, right? It's not, oh, babies just get born. That's why, right? Guaranteed. No. Not guaranteed. Insofar as we live in accord with God's designs, yes, Children are born, but there's no guarantee for unless God builds, there's no baby. And in the same way, did you know that's how disciples are made? That's how churches are planted? Churches are planted out of the natural outworking of making disciples. There is no guarantee of a church being planted any more than a baby being born. But God does do this. And He does this as we obey 
His basic commands to make disciples. There is no way to guarantee fruitfulness. But there is a way to guarantee there's zero fruitfulness. And that's don't be faithful. Don't be faithful. But as as we close, we have to understand that God basically is in the business of multiplying His people that He might magnify His glory in the world. And more children make the, the family stronger. That's what the psalmist is talking about. Notice what he says, right? They're arrows in the hand of a warrior. They're not just more mouths to feed, though they're mouths to feed. More children increase a family's attacking power. Like, tangibly. Really. More children increase a family's defensive power. More children increase the family's kingdom power. And as I said, this is true for natural families, but how much more true is it for spiritual families? As disciples are made, and the name of Jesus becomes more powerful, more resonating, more loud because of the many more voices that are proclaiming and representing and glorifying God with their lives. God is not about having a large church with a large building with a large array of programs. God is devoted to creating a large witness for Himself in this city and beyond. That's why in verse 5 He says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Right? What's the gates? The gates were the, the gates of the city where decisions by the rulers and leaders of the city were made. And as a man's children grew, right, they grew to have a voice. And they would sit with their father at the gate. And they would have influence and they would be able to defend the family and ultimately argue for God's ways and against God's enemies. Is that not a picture of what the church is? As more children, if you will, disciples are made, we grow, we're stronger, you have more influence, more impact to stand for the Lord, to defend what is true and what is right, and to see His name go forth. So as we begin this new season with this new building in a culture that honestly begins to present us new challenges every day, what are we going to do? Let me tell you what Vision Sunday is about. We're doing nothing new. Because if doing something new means building it without the Lord, we are not going to try to be new or clever or cool or culturally relevant, whatever that is. On the contrary, we are going to do what we have always endeavored to do, be a faithful church. That's it. We're going to be a faithful church. And we'll trust God with the fruitfulness. We'll faithfully commit our work to the Lord, which means we're going to pray a lot We're going to pray as we make plans and trust that He will establish our steps. That's not really very clever. We are going to faithfully submit 
to His will as He builds. Oh, whoa, what? He may build something different than what we expect. That is true for families where you're like, wait! I've been faithful and my kids are going like this! Do you trust that the Lord is building? Or do you believe that it's all dependent upon you? You, What you did good and what you're doing bad. So trusting the Lord building. We will faithfully obey God's Word, especially it becomes unpopular and even illegal. We will faithfully build godly marriages. You want to know one of the best things you can do to be a faithful disciple of Christ and a member of this church? Love your wife or love your husband well. There you go. Secrets out. Have a faithful marriage. We'll faithfully make disciples beginning with our kids. Probably read the Babylon Bee, right? That's a satirical writing of the Christians that is actually really accurate at times. And one of the headlines I read was, Man seeking men to make disciples. Oh, no, it's father of three seeking men to make disciples of. You have some disciples to make in your own home. Start there. Or start downstairs. There's plenty of little disciples in the making that could use your help and use your love. We will faithfully love and serve one another. We're going to faithfully preach the cross of Christ. And I'll tell you right now, there's a reason why Jesus Christ is offensive and the cross of Christ is what Paul stood on because what that shows us is the brokenness of our sin. The minute you stop talking about the cross of Christ, you stop talking about grace that is necessary for sinners like us. So we're going to talk about sin because we're going to talk about the cross. And we're going to talk about the resurrection. And we will faithfully teach every last bit of the Word of God. Simply, we will faithfully fight for Christ. We will faithfully suffer like Christ. And we will faithfully, I pray, rest in Christ, believing that God is the one who gives and God is the one who takes away. So blessed be the name of the Lord. Unless He builds, ain't nothing getting built. I pray that our church is truly devoted to that. Yeah, it's cool to have a building, but you know what? It doesn't really matter. Let's trust that God's actually going to build what needs to be built, which is hearts and disciples, souls that last for eternity, because one day this building's going to burn up, and one day this church won't exist. Where's the Galatian church? I don't know. Where's the Ephesian church? Gone! One day, Restoration Road Church won't exist. So let us take our responsibility in this generation seriously and commit our plans to the Lord and say, Lord, You build it or we don't want it built. You build it or I don't want it built. We'll trust in You as You build. Let's pray.